Welcome to this special day, December 25th, where we celebrate the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, a real person born in Bethlehem. If possible, you might want to listen to O Come All Ye Faithful after the sermon to finish off, to finish off the service. This morning, we're looking at the birth of Christ and specifically who this baby is. It was a virgin birth. There was a claim that he is the Son of God and he will save his people. He's given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Is this baby really deity? Is he more than a human? Yes, he's a human, but he's God. He has human nature and God nature. How can this be? The New Testament has many references that give the strong evidence that Jesus is not only possessing human nature, but also possessing God nature. Here's one of them from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. In our relationships with each other, we need to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Here it is. Jesus, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, which means to use to his own advantage or to cling to that status no matter what. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I will be using some words that perhaps you have not heard before. They are words from theology, which is the study of God. And just like other ologies, like biology or geology, we will have precise words and words that are not in our usual vocabulary, words that are needed to describe the intricacies of the subject. So I want to make this Christmas morning talk about what theologians call the incarnation. Now there's a word we don't use every day. This is the word to describe God, the creator of the universe, taking on human flesh and human nature, becoming one of us. It's a Latin word meaning to be made flesh incarnation. God became flesh. He took on flesh, but not just the body, but the very nature of a human. Flesh, bones, and everything else. Jesus was not God in a human costume on the outside, but in all the functions of the entire body, he was human. His body had all 11 systems to be able to live. Circulatory, digestive, the immune system, the nervous system, the endocrine system, muscle system, the respiratory system. Jesus also had a personality type. He, he had either fast or slow twitch muscles. He was fully human. He needed to learn things. His brain did not arrive in Bethlehem fully loaded with all the God knowledge. He would need to learn carpentry skills and slingshot accuracy. He couldn't just throw a stone in the air and direct it with supernatural powers while the stone is hurtling in the air. He was fully human, very nature human, it says. We sometimes use terms like she is incarnate good or he is evil incarnate. It means to typify or to personify something. And in this case, Jesus personifies God. He is God, the creator. Philippians chapter 2, 6 and 7 here tell us of the incarnation. And they also tell us to have the same attitude as Jesus. We are to incarnate ourselves in a way, to be like Jesus in this world, be like him. The incarnation is Paul's illustration of what it means to be humble and not to think too highly of yourself, to think of others' interests ahead of your own. 
Jesus did, and he is our example because he is fully God and became human. We are not to abuse power like Jesus. We are to consider others better than ourselves. And the incarnation is the greatest living example and application of the kind of life you and I are to live. So Jesus was fully God and fully human. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 again. Very nature God. Greek gives the idea it's the form of God. That is who baby Jesus is. Very nature God. When you think of God, the creator, Yahweh, Lord of the Old Testament, the God of the one God Jewish people, that's who he is. Remember, Paul was a monotheist, one God, and he's saying this to us. The main reason the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus crucified was for blasphemy, because he took on the attributes of the one Lord. Well, he did because he was the one Lord, Yahweh. In John chapter 10, verse 33, the Jewish leaders were going to stone Jesus for blasphemy because he was, they saw him, it says, as a human being, and he made himself out to be Yahweh, God, the Lord of their scriptures. The Greek word here Paul uses is morph. It means form of God or very nature. We have the word morphed we might use in our culture. It's a change of image, to change form. We talk about someone trying to morph themselves into a different person. We will use new software and we can morph a picture of a dog into a picture of a cat. Transformer toys from a few years ago had Megatron and he could turn himself into the form of a pistol. You and I have a form, a nature, and it's human. Jesus has that. Every creature has a form, a horse, a cat, a dog, a shrimp, an elephant. If I said that, in my nature, I am an elephant. What would you think? No, you're not, Gary. You are a human. Well, I want to be a lion. I consider myself a lion. I can think that all I want, but I'm actually a human. That's what I am. Jesus was a human in his nature, in his body, in everything. So, but Jesus has two essential natures, deity and human. Here's another word for us in theology, hypostatic union. <laughs> Two distinct personal beings in one, the joining of divine nature and human nature into the single person of Jesus Christ. Not 50-50, 100% divine, 100% human. Jesus in very form or nature, God. Jesus in very form or nature, human. That's what the scriptures tell us. And Paul is telling us something about Christ's mindset in both expressions of his being, first as God, and second in his humanity, taking on the form of a servant. Jesus was characterized by what was essential to being God. Sovereign, all-powerful, knowing, present, immutable, eternal. He said to some religious leaders, before Abraham was born, I am. He's taking on eternity. Paul wants his readers to consider the starting point of Jesus. He actually didn't have one. <laughs> he always existed. The Trinity always existed. This is the start. Jesus is creator, Yahweh. This is the beginning of Jesus. He is God. N.T. Wright says this, By Jesus taking on humanness does not mean it's a removal of deity. On the contrary, it is an expression of deity. Jesus is able to do it because he is God. The act of incarnation is an elegant expression of what God can do that is otherwise to us incomprehensible and impossible. Continue with verse 7. 
So by taking the very nature or form of a servant, he's being born in human likeness, just like you and I. He's identified with us, but he wasn't only human. He was God, living out a truly human life. And that's what this expression says. Christ's entrance into history was in the likeness of human beings. The word likeness here means having common experience, being, being similar in appearance. So Jesus had a nativity, a process of birth, a womb <laughs> that he came from into the world, a place of birth, Bethlehem. There was a census taken. He was one person in the population. He would have had a birth certificate or whatever paperwork they had at that time. He was not a divine being in a human mask. He was fully human. He was not faking identification with humanity. He was not an alias or wearing a human disguise. He was and still is human. So to put the sentence all together, in Christ Jesus, God has shown his true nature, full deity, his form, full human, both. And Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, used to his advantage over people, throw his power around. He says he became a servant, a servant king. Christ's consideration or decision here does not imply that he gave up his equality with God, but that he expressed his equality with God. Paul calls it a mindset. We are to have the same mindset. A mindset based from reality. He truly was and is equal with God, but he laid it aside for his years on earth and did not push his weight around that way. He actually was someone amazing. He had all power and knowledge and he did not use it on people. Compare that to many leaders today who think they have all the power, but don't, but act like they actually do. Jesus always existed, always had equality within the Trinity. But he comes to do a work, it says, to die for us and to give us life. No other human can do this. So Jesus did not view his divine being and rank as something to use for his own selfish advantage. That would be inconsistent with his character. And this verse states that this negative choice, this decision to say no to selfish exploitation of an advantage position was the choice of this divine person. Christ's consideration or decision does not imply that he gave up his equality with God, but that he expressed his equality with God. He could have, and he did not. That's the power and freedom he had. The son who always existed regarded equality with God, not as excusing him from the task of suffering and death, but actually it qualified him, uniquely qualified him to do that very work. No other human could die for the sins of the world. In contrast to the natural human tendency to say yes to every opportunity to exploit personal advantage of position and power for selfish purposes, Jesus says no to that. And he dies on the cross for us. The great rulers, heroes, and gods of the citizens of Philippi were famous for exploiting their positions of power. Jesus did not. He took on the form of a human. Jesus came to help people. Hebrews 2.16 says, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. That's us. The word helps here means to lay hold of somebody in order to help them. 
Humans are the ones he rescues. Therefore, he became a human. He helps carry our burdens. The word is also used in the gospel to describe Jesus reaching out to take hold of people. It sometimes refers to an embrace or a hug. You have to be human to hug another human here. That's what Jesus does. The doctrine of the incarnation envisions the Son of God laying hold of human nature itself, reaching out to it and drawing it in, taking it on by taking it up into union with himself. He embraces you and I. Jesus talk, it talks in Philippians of Jesus going to the cross, and that is related to sin and forgiveness, but our incarnation is related to his divinity and humanity coming into contact with the human race. By becoming incarnate, the Son made himself personally present to humanity in an unprecedented, intimate way. So the total gospel message includes two moments. First, that the Son of God came to us at Bethlehem. And second, that he died and rose for us. And the two go together seamlessly. God is with us, Emmanuel, and God is for us, the work on the cross. We learn that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, in the first chapter of Matthew. But it is not until the final chapter in Matthew that the crucified and risen Lord speaks of the promise, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Colossians 1.27 talks about Christ being in us. He is with us because he is in us. We receive him. We can and must acknowledge both, recognizing that God is with us, that's the focus of Christmas. And God is for us. That's the cross. Forgiveness, mercy, and grace. That's Easter. At Christmas, talking and singing about the personhood of Christ is unavoidable. The baby we consider in his nativity is not actively doing anything yet. He's a baby. And we can only stand amazed at his divine identity. That's what the shepherds did and the, and the three kings. That is why so many of the Christmas carols come back to the note of simple adoration. Come, let us adore this baby. Why? He is the king. He is God in the flesh. And that's why sometimes we ask, well, what kind of child is this? Who is this? This is God in the flesh. And that's why all we can do is celebrate at Christmas, gather with loved ones, exchange gifts and gratefulness for the gift of Jesus in Bethlehem. The incarnation means we look all the way into his full humanity and as far as we can into his true divinity. That's a vast scope, bringing humanity and divinity together in our minds. Somehow though, of all the special days in the church calendar, it is Christmas that has made its way into the public mind or the secular mind, even into the secular schedule and lodged itself in the popular imagination of our world. Unbelievers and semi-believers celebrate the Christmas holiday. I'm sure secular citizens are not feeling drawn to Christmas because they grasp the theology of the incarnation, but the universal good news of the Son of God taking hold of human nature is what Christmas is. Yet Christmas seems to have taken hold of culture. This festival of the Incarnation somehow presents itself to the world as a celebration open and available to all. The unchurched or barely churched will sing Joy of the World. They will go and sing and hear the Messiah, not really knowing, none of us really knowing the profound theological significance in that song and the events it shows. 
characters in holiday films are perpetually seeking the true meaning of Christmas and almost always settling for a theologically inadequate answer. But perhaps this annual seeking is itself some kind of parable for us. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till the soul felt its worth. That's what we're all looking for at Christmas. Maybe the weary world understands that they are thirsting for hope and for something to give their soul some worth. Christians and non-Christians alike gather to hear, for unto us the child is born, and the angels singing glory to God in the highest. Handel's Messiah is sung at Christmas, and it runs over two hours long. And it includes not only the crucifixion and resurrection, but even the ascension of Jesus into heaven, the mission of the church, and the spread of the gospel around the world, and the return of Christ. And that's what that Hallelujah Chorus actually is about, the return of Christ. In the popular mind, Handel's Messiah is about the birth of Jesus, but in reality it's about his entire work from, from birth to the grave and coming back. That's what it's about. Our culture has not eliminated the meaning of Christmas. It's just added all kinds of distractions and busyness. And for believers, Christmas is the time to cut through it all and tell others the true meaning of Christmas. God with us. God gave us the gift of Jesus. We don't need to mock out the culture, but show the true meaning of Christmas on this day and in this season. We are to be Jesus to the world where in a sense we incarnate Jesus to the world through our attitudes and our words and our actions. Our love and our grace and our mercy. That's how we are to be to people, just like Jesus. Christmas is necessary for Easter, that's true. This is the gospel we embrace and share, God with us. Take it another step, God is for us. Romans 8, 31, 39, the context here is the Spirit helps you and I in our weakness, and we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And it says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then he goes on a big list of here of things that nothing can separate us from this love of Christ that we have. Like he is for us. Troubles, hardships, persecutions, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, none of those things can separate us from God. Why? Because God is for us. He is with us. He is in us and he is for us. So this message of the incarnation is bigger than we often realize and it draws people in. This is the invitation this Christmas season. Know this baby born in Bethlehem. May it expand our own horizons as we come to adore him. So this is the season, this is the day to come and adore him, the servant king born in Bethlehem.